Psalm 119, and uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 to 16, the second stanza of Baith. Psalm 119, verse 9 to 16. This is the reading of God's holy word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Will you bow with me as we pray for God's blessings upon his word? Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is, Lord, more precious than gold or silver. It is sweeter than honey to our lips. And I pray, O Lord, that you would make your word now the very delight of our hearts, and that the very heartbeat of our souls will be to delight and to treasure the word of God. I pray that you would speak to us now in this word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A holy God demands a holy people. God will accept nothing less than a holy people. And woven through the tapestry of Scripture, God's demand of holiness is upheld from beginning to the end. When God had led Israel out of the bondage of in Egypt and made them a special nation, he set them apart and he called them his chosen people and gave them a special commission by saying, Be holy, for I am holy in Leviticus. And this special call didn't start with the nation of Israel. It didn't start even with Moses or even with Abraham. This call to holiness was first given to Adam and Eve. This was the original assignment to them. And for us, because we were created in the image of God, you see, and we were made to mirror and to reflect God's character. And we were created to shine forth to the world the holiness of God. And that's why you see in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament picks up on that original assignment. And Peter writes, you shall be holy in 1 Peter 1.16, for I am holy. Our problem is, is that we were called to be holy, but we are not holy. But by the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those that have placed their faith in him are declared the holy ones. And God not only imparts in his sovereign grace in our justification, but also in our sanctification. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.16. And in a day when people are always asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Paul answers that question in terms that, that are as simple as they can get. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification. Sanctification is that inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Spirit when he calls him or her to be a true believer. Very simply, sanctification means growth in likeness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only washes us by uh, our sins in his own blood, but he also separates us from our natural love of sin of the world. And he puts a new principle into our hearts and makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus Christ. And the instrument by which sanctification will occur is the sanctifying power of God's word. There is no other instrument in all the world that has the power to purify your life as does the words of the living God. The night before our Lord was crucified, and you read it, our Lord prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. The means of sanctification and purification in the believer's life is the word of God. The holy scriptures are the efficient means for holiness. God's word is like a skillful optometrist that makes the eyes clear to see sin and the holiness that God demands. God's word is is like a fire that burns with convicting power and convinces us of sin in our life. God's word is like a detergent that cleanses the stains of our filthy clothes of sin. God's word is like a pruning knife that it cuts off and it cuts out the branches of sin that it may bear more fruit. And God's word uncovers sin in your life, our lives. It convicts sin, it cleanses sin, and it casts out sin. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, and without blemish. What is it that purifies the church? What is it that makes the bride beautiful for, her, for the wedding? What is it that makes the church spotless and blameless when she stands next to her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ? The washing of the water with the word. It is the word that has this cleansing effect. It is the word that makes the bride beautiful. Why is it that we encourage you to read the word? Why have a retreat with a theme, read the word? Why stress the importance of hearing God's word? It's because the God-appointed means by which God will sanctify you is the word of God. And beloved, I want to tell you one day, you know, I want to present my congregation that I serve to Christ as a pure virgin. And that is really the goal of every pastor who loves his church to present his uh, bride, um, to present the congregation as a pure bride. And I'll be honest with you. If I thought that legalism could do that, I'll become a legalist. 
If I thought that signs and wonders and miracles could do that, could sanctify you, I would bring in somebody who just says shabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalabalab
tells us here in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Basically, what Solomon is saying is, Live for God while you are young before you grow old and you croak. That's what he's saying. Because youth will quickly fade into a period of aging and the decisions that a youthful uh, make now when you are older will be difficult to break. Have you guys ever heard that expression? Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Cornelius Van Til, you know, that name might not mean a lot to you, but he was this prolific professor of apologetics in the American church. And a story is told of him at a very elderly age. While he was speaking at a conference, and in the question and answer session, the question was asked, if it becomes easier to overcome sin, the older you get. And a much younger pastor, you know, wanted to answer that question first, and he says, I suppose so. And he felt the heat of the elder Van Til, who of course lived long enough to know that it doesn't get any easier. And the later you leave it, the harder it gets. And so I urge this question upon you. How can you keep your way pure? And you need to ask this question while you still have your youth and while you are still relatively young and surely become you become an old, filthy man or woman and have to bitterly ask the question, how can an old man cleanse his way and get rid of his filth? Oh, you need to dread that day when you have to ask a question like that. But instead, while your future is still ahead of you, ask yourself, how can I keep my way pure? Perhaps there has never been a better time in your life than to ask this question right now, how can I keep my way pure? Because perhaps you are stuck in some kind of gross sin in your life. Perhaps there are some sinful habits of sin that you have formed in your life. Especially at a church like this, and I know when the church is so prominent and preaching God's word, there is this temptation to appear more righteous on the outside when inside in our hearts are full of vile and corruption. And so it is this question that you need to lay at your heart. How can I keep my way pure? It is ours to ask the question, It is God to answer it and enable us to carry it out. He says, by guarding it according to your word. How precious, therefore, is the word of God as the means of this cleansing operation. Now let's turn to the practice of purity. The question is asked how in the stanza. And the rest of the stanza answers that for us. With our hearts, with our lips, with our feet, and with our eyes. In order for the word to have a sanctifying effect upon our lives, it must affect 
every faculty of our soul and body since our souls have been polluted in every faculty. And the heart is where purity must begin. And by heart, I don't mean that human organ that pumps blood, but that which from it flow the springs of life. According to the Bible, the heart is the control center of the mind and the will and the emotion. It is the very center of our personality. And the heart is not merely affections or emotions, but it is the total man. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And this psalmist painfully understood the heart in those categories, and he knows that this must be the place to start. And there are three things that the heart does. It seeks, it stores, and it submits. In verse 10, the heart seeks. The verse 10 The psalmist cries out, with my whole heart, I seek you. And his heart had gone after God himself. He followed hard after God and intensely pursued him. And his soul longed to commune with God. I want to tell you, if you want to have purity in your lives, there must be this longing within your soul to pursue God and to deepen your relationship with him. This is the surest mode of sanctifying your life. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life. In other words, it directs the rest of your life. What you set your mind and your emotions determines where you go and what you do. If your religion is merely external, then you will take pride in your morality and become a legalist. If your heart is passionate about peripheral things, then you will soon be occupied with those things that are peripheral. If what you dream of and possessing is a certain thing, if what you desire is a certain salary or a certain occupation, that begins to shape your life. But if your heart seeks after God, his ways become your ways and his thoughts become your thoughts. That is why you see, reading the Bible is not an end in itself. God is the end. He is the end goal of our pursuit. And the word word of God is only a means to that greater end. And it's only when we wholeheartedly seek after God do we love what he loves and consequently hate what he hates. And had the psalmist not so fervently sought the Lord, he would never have been burdened by uh, purifying his way. But as the psalmist continued to pursue and follow hard after God, he saw God for who he really was, the Holy One. And let me tell you, if the sense of the presence of the Holy One does anything, it devastates a man and a woman. This is what happened to the prophet Isaiah. One look at his holiness brought devastation upon himself and And said, I am a man of unclean lips. And just as Isaiah dreaded his sins after seeing a holy God, so this psalmist dreaded falling into sin after setting his heart to seek for God. He says, let me not wander from your commandments. And as Spurgeon says, the man of God here exerts himself but does not trust himself. 
His heart is in walking with God, but he knows that even his whole strength is not enough to keep him right unless his king shall be his keeper, and he who made the command shall make him constant in obeying them. And I want to tell you, beloved, this is a necessary prayer for all of us. No matter how committed you think you may be, no matter how much you may set your heart towards God, there is always a capacity within us to fail and to wander away from God. And so we must pray, let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the uh, the God I love. And here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The heart not only seeks, but the heart also stores. And God's word must be stored in our heart to prevent us against sin. Look at verse 11. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The NIV uses the word hidden, but I don't think that really gets at the meaning. It's not the idea of hiding Rather, it's the idea of treasuring up or storing up. And it's precious to you. And because it's precious to you, you store it up in your heart. And if you know anything about me or Pastor Danny, Pastor Aaron, we love J's. And so if we have a lot of J's, we like to treasure it in a very nice and safe place. And we like to store it there. And it's, it's that idea. It's like a man hoarding his riches in a safe place where they are carefully guarded and daily watched over. And that's what it means to store up the word in the heart. It means to treasure them up so that none of the precious riches slip through our fingers and to be lost. Now, I want you to notice there are other verses that speak of the word of God in the heart and what it produces. Let me just say some to you. Psalm 37, 21. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Proverbs 2, 10. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, in a very similar stream of thought, The psalmist of Psalm 119 has set his sight high for storing God's word in his heart. The aim of his target? In order that I might not sin against you. Because sin is a very personal offense to God. And R.C. Sproul says that even the smallest sin is treason against him. And God's word is the best defense Against sin. Listen, it's been well said that this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And you know, when you get into sin, the temptation for you is going to be to stop reading this book. And the moment sin occurs in your life, it could be blatant as expressing lust in sexual immorality. Or it could be as subtle as bitterness or laziness that grows in your heart. You're going to stop reading this book. But you must get the word of God in your heart. And not just written in our notes, but graven in our hearts. 
You know, what's very striking about this verse and the second stanza is that it starts with the second Hebrew alphabet, Baith. The Hebrew alphabet letter Baith is also a word that means house. This verse then focuses on making the word of God a home in our heart. Here's a very simple outline to help you remember this precious truth in verse 11. The best thing, your word, stored in the best place, my heart, for the best purpose, that I might not sin against you. Let me ask you, what is the condition of your heart? What is the home of your heart? And here's how you can tell how the word of God is stored in your heart. Compare it with guests who are visiting a hotel and compare that to children living at home. Those that are guests at our hotel, there is a certain hustle and bustle about them, that it is a mere temporary visit. They forget the visit right after they had left. But those that have the word of God stored in the heart is like children living at home because they belong there. And something is missing if the children are not in the home. I remember when I was 17, I got into a lot of trouble. And one day, you know, I got caught doing drugs or whatever. And I came home. My dad was about to whip me. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So I said, that's it, Dad. I'm out. And I ran away. I ran away. And back in those days, we didn't have any cell phones. I couldn't call anybody. So I just walked to the bus stop. And while I was there in my bus stop, uh, I saw a van pull in. And I noticed it was my, my parents' van. And my mom opened the door. And she started weeping and said, come home, son. Come home. That's what we're talking about when we have the word of God in our hearts. Children belong at their home. And so you must have the word a home um, in your heart. Here's another thing that the heart does. The heart submits. The heart submits. Though the best thing is to store the word of God in the best place, we cannot use it for the best place, for the best purpose, I'm sorry, unless we understand it. Therefore, we need to submit ourselves and have the spirit of God open the eyes of our hearts. This is the psalmist's prayer in verse 12. You will notice that he is first overjoyed with such praise and adoration and plumbing the depths of God's word. And here, these words arises out of an intense admiration of his divine character. He says, blessed are you, O Lord. And in this immediate context, the psalmist celebrates the Lord as the wisdom teacher par excellence. The wisdom, the psalmist here humbles himself before the word, and he comes in humble recognition as a dependent disciple. And you see, in this verse, the basic ingredients of sanctification are all found here. God, the gracious teacher, the psalmist, the dependent student, and the textbook, the sufficient word. And it is one thing to be self taught. It is another thing to be man taught, but oh, to be God taught. Here is why many people find the Bible difficult to understand and find it very dark in its meaning. They do not humble themselves and ask for wisdom and instruction, and so they carry nothing from it. 
I want to tell you, friends, humble prayer will throw more light on your Bibles than all the commentaries that are written ever by man. Nine times over, the psalmist cried, teach me, O Lord, teach me your word. It is the Holy Spirit, by his inspiration, that the book was written. And he alone has the keys to this book. And he alone can unlock the meaning so that it sanctifies you. You know, the old reformers, men like Luther and Calvin, understood that although we have the Bible to study, we also must have the Holy Spirit as our teacher to teach us what is taught in it. And they actually went as far in saying that without the Spirit, the Bible is a dead book. And when we come to the Word of God, we must come humbly bowing that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts. Jesus said, uh, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that is really exactly what takes place next. Verse 13, he says, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. And here, besides our heart, the next way that we can keep our way pure is with our lips. Because we must openly declare everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And seen in the context of how can a young man keep his way pure, continually opening my mouth and preaching the gospel is an effectual method of cleansing. Now notice the striking parallelism between with my lips at the beginning of the verse and God's mouth at the very end. The psalmist viewed himself as a mouthpiece for everything at which God issued from God's own mouth. I mean, how could his ways not be pure when he declares forth God's word? Friends, do you know, do you know what keeps my heart pure more than anything else? It's that I have to stand behind this pulpit and open the word of God and speak it to you. And surely there are false preachers who declare boldly the word of God and where their life does not match what they preach. And I tell you, they will doubly feel the wrath of God. But the more I know that I speak the word, the more I declare the word of God, the more my conscience and soul is so gripped by the word that it would be heinous for me to come in this pulpit and to have not a conscious attempt but to keep the word of God. And so it is in your life as well. Though all are not called to preach, you are all called to be witnesses of Christ. You are all called to be ambassadors of Christ. And the more and more you proclaim God's word, the more you will keep this book because it will be very etched into your conscience. And I want to tell you, one of the most dangerous places to be out a Christian, as a Christian is to be a secret service Christian a secret service Christian, and not telling anybody about the truth of God. And surely the day when we have been waxing eloquently in our worldly conversations and yet have neglected the opportunities of speaking a work for him must be considered a lost day. But as we share the word of God, our souls are so intertwined with a word that our conscience pulls us and keeps us to live his word. And so I would just plead that you would be addicted 
to preaching the gospel, that you will be addicted to preaching his word, and then your ways will be pure. Well, the question was asked, how can a young man keep his way pure? His way has the idea of a course or a journey or a pilgrimage. And in order for the young man to keep his journey pure, he must learn to walk in it with his feet. And it is a sanctifying word of God that is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He says in verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as on riches. Notice, he doesn't say that he merely delights in God's testimonies, but in the way of your testimonies, the practical application, the guide of his testimonies is my very delight. Therefore, he prized the Bible as much as all riches for helping him to avoid pitfalls and snares along the way. Because the Bible is our chart and it is our compass in life's roadway. You know, there's a story that's told of a woman that's on board of a ship, and it was, the ship was threading through many rocks. And uh, she asked the captain of the ship if he knew where all the rocks were. And he said, no, ma'am, but I know where the deep water is. Well, that's it. I mean, we cannot tell where all the rocks are, but we can know where the deep water is because the Bible tells us. And our task is then to study this book until we know where the deep water is, where it will lead us to the path of righteousness in our feet. And then we will delight in it as much as in all riches. Finally, we'll keep our ways pure with our eyes. In verse 15, he says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Now, when the psalmist uses eyes in this, talk, in this context, he's uh, speaking of spiritual insight. And the psalmist is committing himself to the studying of God's word and to the meditation of God's word. And here he says, I will meditate on your precepts. You know, to meditate means simply to think long and hard about the text, to mull it over and over in our minds like a cow chewing its cud. A cow chews its cud thoroughly, digesting their food until every single moisture is squeezed out of the cud. And here's why I believe many Christians fail. Though they read the word of God, they do not take the next step in the meditation of God's word. And while reading is the exposure to Scripture, meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And meditation serves as the bridge between interpretation and application, between knowing what a passage means and putting it into practice. And thus the psalmist meditates, he ponders, he uh, mulls it over his mind so that he can take now what he has read into his very heart to extend it in his hands and his feet. And by meditating upon God's word, it is the imprint of his presence on our thoughts. And it is the heart print of his presence upon our souls that fuels our affections for God so that they burn long after the meeting with God. I mean, heaven seems near to us when we meditate upon God's word. However, without the meditation of God's word, a spiritual frost 
forms on our hearts, and we are frozen to do anything for God. So where is the meditating Christian today? Where are those Christians who make it a priority in their day to meditate upon the word of God? Let us recover this sacred task of meditating God's word so we would echo with the psalmist in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Finally, he says, I will, in verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice it's here that it's the Christian that meditates much, that delights in the word of God much. Meditation leads to delight. And it's the very same principle that was described in Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You know, I want to tell you on the one hand, you know, there is no greater delight than to prize the word of God. But, you know, on the other hand, there is no greater insult to the creator than to neglect his written word. Therefore, he ends uh, this stanza by resolving, I will not forget your word. I will not neglect your word. He was determined not to neglect reading God's word. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking to his people and exhorting and really rebuking his people for neglecting of the reading of God's word, said this. Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket volume, neatly bound. When they get home, they lay it up in a drawer till next Sunday morning, and then it comes out again for a little bit of a treat, then goes to chapel. That is all the poor Bible gets in the way of an airing. That is your style of entertaining the heavenly messenger. He says there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. There there are some of you who have not turned over your Bibles for a long, long while. And what think of you? Well, I will tell you blunt words, but true words. What will God say at last? When you shall come before me and he shall say, did you read my Bible? No. I wrote a letter of mercy. Did you read it? No. Rebel, I have sent thee a letter inviting thee to me. Didst thou ever read it? Lord, I never broke the seal. I kept it shut. Wretch, says God, then thou deservest hell. And if I sent thee a loving epistle that thou would not even break the seal, what shall I do unto thee? Let me ask you very simply, is the Bible the word of God? Then mind you, do not neglect it. Oh, be sure that if you do not read the word, you are in fearful danger of losing your soul. Now, as we bring our session and our retreat to a close, may I just charge you and to read the word? Can I just exhort you to read the word and how to read it and to delight in it? Let me give you seven of these exhortations to how to read the word. And we'll end it this way. Number one, read it this very day. The way to read the word of God is to actually read it. And I don't mean because you are at the retreat you are forced to read the gospel of John. I mean begin this very day when you leave the retreat because it is not intending, it is not resolving, it is not wishing that will help you. It is actually doing it. Because you don't wait a whole day to check your email, do you? 
You don't even check a whole hour to check your Facebook. So how long will you wait to read God's word? Read it this very day. Number two, read it often. Read it often. You know, when you read all of Psalm 119, and I hope you get an opportunity to do so, there is one personal characteristic that stands out very noticeably. From sunrise to beyond sunset, the word of God dominates his life. At dawn, he reads the word, verse 147. Nightly, he reads the word, verse 55, 148. At midnight, he reads, 62. Daily, he loves the word, verse 97. Seven times daily, in verse 164. You know, there are some of us who never miss any meals of the day, right? I mean, at this retreat, we have two meals. We would never miss that for the world. When we go back home, three, right? Three square meals. And I'm not really talking about those little bunny square, bunny little, you know, rabbit meals. I'm talking about three square ones, three good meals. And it must be the same for our spiritual diet. J.C. Ryle says that yesterday's bread will not feed the worker today. And today's bread will not feed the worker tomorrow. You must feed on the daily word of God and give your Bible the best Give it the best time of the day. Uh, Number three, read it with great diligence. Read it with great diligence. That means don't just read it to read. Don't just read it to read. You know, oh, I have have a quota that I got to meet for the day. Five chapters that I got to meet every day. What did you learn? Well, I don't know, but I got to I got to meet the quota. You know, I got to read five chapters. No, no, no. Settle it down in your mind as a general principle. That a Bible not understood is a Bible that does no good. So you must study it and outline it and, and dig for it like a man digging gold. I was reading a little note about Martin Luther and how he studied the Bible and how he read the word with great diligence. He said, uh, I study my Bible like I gather apples. I shake the whole tree first that the ripest might fall. Then I shake every limb, and when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch. And then I shake every twig, and then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole, like shaking the whole tree. Then I, shall, I shake every limb, I study book after book. Then I shake every branch, I give attention to the chapters. Then I shake every twig or carefully study the paragraph and sentences and words and meanings. That is how we need to read the word with great diligence in order to understand it. Number four, read it with reverence. Read it with reverence. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said, Think in every line you read that God is speaking to you. Say to your soul, whenever you come and open the Bible, oh, my soul, you are going to read a message from God. And since you are reading a message from God, be sure to always read it with deep reverence. Honor the word. Exalt the word. Read it with reverence. Five, read the word with prayer. Read the word with prayer. What I mean by that is before you come to read the word, pray 
uh, before you read. You know, I borrowed uh, John Piper's acrostic in my own prayer life as I read God's, before I read God's word. And the acrostic is I-O-U-S. And it helps me tremendously. Uh, hopefully it will help you. I stands for incline my heart to your testimony, Psalm 119.36. Since my heart is so inclined to sleep and be distracted with a lot of other things in the Bible, oh, open my eyes to see the wonders in your word, Psalm 119.18. Since my heart is so dull and so blind to his word, open my eyes to the wonders of your word. You unite my heart to fear your name, Psalm 86, 11. Because since my heart is often so distracted and so divided, unite my heart to fear your name. And finally, S, satisfy me with your steadfast love, Psalm nineteen fourteen. Since my heart is so tempted to be satisfied by many other things, satisfy me with steadfast love. So pray, uh, read the word with prayer. Six, read it with specific application for your life. That means you say to God, speak to me. Speak to me, Lord. That's application. Speak to me that I might know how to live. You know, you shouldn't be like those wives that say, aha, oh, this will be a good passage for my husband, and then mark it in red and leave it on his desk for him to read. No, no, no. Don't make that mistake and and say, God, speak to me. And then when you open the word, you say, oh, no, 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 this is too hard. No, you need to read it with specific application in your life. The Bible is read best, which is practiced most. And finally, seven, read the word with Christ continually in view. Read the word with Christ continually in view. The grand subject of all of Scripture is Christ. The grand object of all Scripture is to testify of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament gives us prophecies of his coming. The New Testament, we have the realization of Christ as the Messiah. His cross and his life crown and his crown shine forth everywhere in the Bible. And it isn't that Jesus is in every verse or in every paragraph or even in every book. But he is the theme of the whole of Scripture. Christ is seen in his glory prophetically as the Old Testament speaks of his coming. Christ is seen in his glory historically as his life is seen in the gospel. Christ is seen in his glory theologically as the epistles unfold the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. And Christ is seen eschatologically in his future glory. And I want to tell you that I find that the longer and the more intensely and the more diligently that I look into the glory of Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, the more the Spirit of God changes me and conforms me to the image of his Son. You know, one of my uh, favorite stories is a story of a little girl in France who was poor and was stone blind. She had obtained the gospel of Mark in Braille and learned to read it with the tips of her fingers. And because she had such a passion and love for the scriptures and to read it constantly, her fingers had become callous. 
And by becoming callous, it diminished the capability to discern the letters. And one day, so much desiring to read the scriptures, she cut the skin of the tips of her fingers in order for her to feel the sensibility of the letters. But as she did that, she completely destroyed the nerves of her fingers. And she felt that she must give up the beloved book. And weeping, she, the story tells us that she pressed her lips to the pages of, of the Gospel of Mark. And she said, farewell, farewell. And to her surprise, her lips, more delicate, delicate than her fingers, discerned the form of her letters. And all that night, she read the word of God with her lips. And, and with, uh, with joy that overflowed her soul, she began to read the word of God all day and night. And we here who still have our eyes, let us passionately and delightfully read the word of God this way. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for <clears throat> this retreat. We thank you for the theme of this retreat to read the word. And we do pray, O oh Lord, that as we leave from this retreat, Lord, just like the psalmist did, we would not only resolve, Lord, to read the word of God and to delight in it and to live by it, but to actually do it. And Lord, we realize that we need your help. We need divine enablement to help us to keep our way sanctified. And we know you have provided us with the sufficient book, the sanctifying power of God's word to keep our ways pure. And so I pray that we would leave here delighting more in God's word, seeing the value and treasuring the word of God so that it would be sweet to our lips and sweet to our lives. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.